Good morning. Is this still morning? Is it afternoon? Which, I mean, you know, it's, it's like brunch-ish. And so good brunch-ish, right? That was, that was corny. Uh, if, you, <laughs> if you are live, uh, thank you for joining us, engaging with us this way. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and meet us in the book of Colossians. I am working through uh, emotions. Yeah, my eyes sweated for service. And so, you know, I think I got it out of me. I'm not sure it's going to sweat again at this uh, service, but if it does, it's all good. If you're like, man, I want to see my pastor cry, well, come to first service and you'll see that um, as well. A couple announcements, really just one major one, and then we'll get to the text. Um, and that's tonight, later on this evening, we're just going to have a family meeting, just kind of work through what's been going on in the life of our church, where we are, what's what's coming, some pretty significant and exciting things that are on the deck. Um, now, if you haven't signed up, you haven't registered, you don't have the Zoom link in the YouVersion Bible app, this is a great opportunity. Go to YouVersion Bible app, click on events, hit the Brook Miami, there's a connect card and it has all of that. You sign up and then we can get that information to you um, as soon as possible. So um, we are at the beginning of this journey through uh, the book of Colossians, which will take us some 34 weeks plus and some change. Uh, Colossians, glorious book, some 2,000 words of condensed greatness all in front of us to just invite us to see the majesty of God and what God is doing in and through all of human history, our lives in particular. Now, we work through uh, verses 1 and 2, and really last week, the, the, the goal was just to say, man, there's some, some particulars in this passage that are worth pausing for, and just looking at and dealing with. And as we work through these particulars that were worth pausing for, the takeaway, the, the, the goal was that we would have a, a singular truth just seared into our souls, and that truth being that the scriptures will never come alive for us with cursory engagement from us. We have surface level engagement with the scriptures, and they would stay stale. But if we go deep into them, if we interrogate them, if we ask them questions, we interact with them, well, they come alive. That was the end game. Today, we are going to look at one of those particulars, this idea, this concept that is a game changer, the idea, the concept, the truth, the particular that we're looking at is the will of God. The will of God. The will of God is one of those concepts or ideas that elicits a variety of responses in every single human in every single place. Have you seen Lion King? Who hasn't seen Lion King and needs to be shamed, right? Greatest animated movie of all time. No, riv no rivals, <laughs> like unmatched in its glory, okay? Now, in the beginning of Lion King, there's that one scene with the hyenas and Scar, where they're in the cave, and uh, the hyenas are talking, and then Scar comes in, and they're startled, and they're like, oh, oh, for a second there, we thought you were Mufasa, like somebody important, right? And, you know, Shenzi is like, ooh, Mufasa. And she's like, say it again. And Banzai's like, Mufasa. He's like, ooh, do it again. Mufasa, Mufasa, Mufasa. And there's like this emotive response that she has, this weird interaction just with that name. And there's certain people that do that to us and certain ideas that do that to us as well. The will of God is one of those things. The will of God, the will of God, the will of God. It just produces something in us. For me, this is where me and God go to war. Just to be quite honest. There's all sorts of emotions in my heart. There's all sorts of concepts and ideas as I search the scriptures and I look at the world around us colliding. And this becomes the battleground of my relationship with God. Where I have to walk away with confidence and say, you know what? I may disagree but I am willing to still trust. That's going to come later. But at the root of all of our responses to the will of God and our lives is how we understand the will of God. 
How we understand and describe the will of God will forever shape how we interact and respond to it. And I want us to interact with it and respond to it well. And what I sense deeply in my soul for us in this moment, the brook, individuals I've talked to, the church collectively, us in this city, Miamians, and us in our nation in particular, Americans, is that for this moment at least, we would increase in how we're interacting with the will of God well because there's some tendencies and tensions in our heart that are causing some particular responses that are super unhelpful and ultimately unhealthy. And one of those is that we would respond to the will of God with fear, or we would fabricate it, or we would force it in our lives or in the lives of other people. Listen to me, we do not have to fear, fabricate, or force the will of God in our lives or the lives of others. And for so many of us, there's this fabrication and forcing because we are prisoners of manufactured promises. Have you seen Iron Man 3? A lot of movie illustrations today. Let me just go ahead and say that. But in Iron Man 3, you have Killian, and he's talking to Tony Stark, and this is Tony Stark before his I Love You 3000 redemptive arc. And so they're having this conversation. He's like, yo, I'm intrigued. Wait for me on the roof. And so he waits for him on the roof, and Tony never shows, and he contemplates all of these dangerous things to do because he's distraught, but he goes up there, and he's a prisoner of this promise that was made to him. And what I have seen is the way we abuse the voice of God in our lives or the lives of other people, and we will say, God told me to tell you, Kevin Hart voice, God told me to tell you, and then we make a prisoner out of somebody or even in our own lives, where because of our passions and the ways that we've interpreted things, our senses, we've created promises for God that God never made at all. And so we're, we're stuck on a skyscraper somewhere, fearful, paralyzed, because we've fabricated and we're now trying to force the will of God in our life or the life of others. And God says, my will should free you that my will is an invitation to joy and to confidence and to rest as you discover and do it. God invites us to have joy and confidence and rest in this discovery and doing of his will and that orients around having a healthy understanding of it. How we interpret the will of God informed by what the writers of the scriptures say and the participants in the story expressed. That's today. I want to move us towards joy, confidence, and rest, and away from fear, fabrication, or forcing by helping us to unpack the will of God well. Now, when we search the scriptures, we feel like God gives us a definition of the will of God. Let me give it to you. The definition that we see come off the pages from the scriptures is that the will of God is the desires and purposes he has or enacts over all creation. That is the will of God. Desires and purposes God has and enacts over all creation. Now, when we want to start to understand those desires and understand those purposes, understand how he enacts them, why he doesn't enact some of them, there's categories that the scriptures give us. And so our time today, if we want to look at how it's going to flow, is we're going to look at some of those categories that the scriptures seem to give us for understanding the will of God. Two of them are in Colossians very explicitly. So we're going to look at these categories, and then we're going to have some considerations in light of that. Just some things to be mindful of, if you will. And we're going to close with a singular call to action that I believe is the action that we're called to take every single time regarding the will of God. That's the flow of our time, categories, considerations, and then this closing call to action. There'll be some categories that we spend more time on, um, and there'll be some categories that we just kind of uh, breeze through. But let's just read it, um, and then we'll take it bit by bit. We're actually going to start in Colossians. Read with me. It reads like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, by the will of God, 
and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God. Now, let me jump down. See, I'm, I get excited about Colossians. Go down to verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. The actual idea that he's getting that continues on to verse 12. But just even on a cursory reading, man, this is so much here, but on a cursory reading, we could see that between verse 1 and verse 9, there seems to be some distinct ways that he is talking about and applying the will of God. In one way, he's talking about it as something that has brought an act to be, apostle by the will of God. And then in another way, he seems to be talking about this thing that we're called to wrestle with, to progress in, to understand, be filled by, and then ultimately apply it in a way that bears fruit in every good work. Those seem to be two complementary ways in which he's talking about the same idea. They are. They give us two of the four categories. Let me give us the four categories now, and then we'll take them bit by bit. The four categories in which we're called, at least the scriptures invite us to understand the will of God, is one, we get the will of God that is hidden. Two, we get the will of God that is revealed. Three, we get the will of decree. And then four, we get the will of command. Those seem to be the categories given to us to understand the will of God. The latter two, the will of decree and the will of command, seem to be the ones that we interact with in Colossians chapter 1, the will of decree being evidence in verse 1 and the will of command being evidence in verse 9. But what we are meant to see, what we have to just consistently wrap our minds around is there is an entire framework that is underpinning and undergirding the way that the New Testament writers think and write. Paul is a Jew. He is rooted in Judaism and the ideas that develop from there. So Christianity was this fulfillment of God's promise to the Jews, not some new thing detached from history or culture but rooted in a story that's being built out over time, completed in the greatness and majesty of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And so what is informing Paul as he's writing this Pharisee of Pharisees, what's informing him is the Torah, the law, what we would consider our Old Testament. Paul's not divorced from that. What's informing him in other New Testament writers is the Mishnah, the, the Talmud, the co collection of interpretation. What's informing him is the, the Midrash. There's so much there that is undergirding. But if we just look at the law, what we have, Old Testament, there's passages and circumstances of the writers talking about the will of God and then the participants in the story interacting with it. I think there's some key passages that will help us significantly. Deuteronomy 29, 29. It actually gives us the first two categories, and it just is so pervasive in the minds of the writers and the participants of the stories. It just shows up everywhere. Deuteronomy 29, 29 reads like this. Moses talking to the entire Jewish community, some two million people plus, and Moses says these words, the secret things belong to God. But those which he's revealed, the word there is made plain, laid bare, naked, out in the open. Those which he's revealed belong to us and our children that we may do the words in this law forever. Like, so there's these secret things, the will of God that is hidden. But it seems to me that there's these clear revealed things, the will of God that's revealed, things made plain. Now that understanding Standing shows up in writing after writing after writing, Isaiah 55, Romans 11. God has a will. Some of it is secret, 
and some of it is revealed. Let's take it bit by bit, cool? Let me give you a definition for the will of God that is hidden. The will of God is, that is hidden are the things not disclosed to us and belong to God. Straightforward, right? Now, that often makes some of us uncomfortable and even frustrated. Because what that means is there's some things that God is withholding. There's some information that God, for whatever reason, is not choosing to disclose. And so we hear that, and then we immediately interpret it through our own story and our own experience. So some of us have had bosses and parents, and some of us are those bosses and those parents, who we use, ah, you don't need to know, to shut down conversations. Right? So, like, your kid comes up to you, Daddy, why? Why? You're on a need-to-know basis right now, and right now you don't need to know. Yes? And so it's to shut down the conversation operating out of a sense of comfort, not concern for what's going on in their heart. And so we hear this, that God has these things, and he's like, you actually don't need to know these things. And we're like, God, you're not, you're not concerned about me. You are trampling on my emotions. You are trampling on my curiosity. But when God withholds information or things in general, God's withholding is to produce at least two responses. The first is that we would treasure him. God withholds so that we would treasure him, and we treasure him by seeing that he's altogether different. This is Isaiah 55. 55, 8 through 9, it says that my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, and my thoughts above the thoughts, so are my ways above your ways. That I am categorically different, I'm transcendent, I'm in a league of my own. We're not the same. We're not the same. That's a good thing, though. Treasure me, because I'm different. So when he withholds, you're like, man, you know what? God is greater than I am. He is different than I am. He is bigger than I am, and it should move us to treasure that, wait a second, there are certain privileges and rights God has that I don't. But one of the things that we also have to come to grips with is that in and of itself is frustrating because we are very comfortable with God on our terms. We are uncomfortable with God on his. And so if I could maneuver or manipulate God to function in a way where he operates on my terms and my perspectives and my thoughts, I'm cool with that. But when God says or does stuff that reminds me that he's altogether different than me, it causes me to recoil a little bit. Well, why? And that's not a tension that we can erase. That's a tension we identify and we deal with till the day we die. But God withholding is so that we would treasure. Now, there's another aspect of God withholding. It's not just so that we could treasure. It's also that we could trust. So we could trust. Let me say this. There is no part of the Christian life that is not lived on the spectrum of faith. Say that again. There is no part of the Christian life that is not lived on the spectrum of faith. Faith, to trust, to take God as true and take him at his word. And there is no part of Christianity that is not lived on that spectrum. Sometimes it's faith that takes a leap. So it radically moves without having all of the dots connected or the entire page filled out. It's a blank page and it radically moves in light of that based on who God is and what God says. This is Abraham. And God looks at Abraham and he says, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you a son in old age. I'm going to give you a people. I'm going to give you a land where you can call your own. And Abraham's like, well, how? Where? When? And God's like, I will tell you later. Right now, start walking. You go. That's a leap. But that's not Old Testament alone. This is John 4 with Jesus and the official whose son was sick, who's from Capernaum. But Jesus is in Cana, some 16-mile difference, no cars, walking, day-and-a-half journey. And he knows Jesus is there, and he is desperate, and he needs his son to be healed. And if you've ever had children or you've been in relationship with children who are sick, it does something to you 
when you know this Tylenol ain't cutting it. Something happens. And so he walks some 16 miles to get to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, man, please come up 16 miles in the other direction, and I need you to come heal my son. And Jesus responds, man, unless you see signs and wonders, you will never believe, which is loaded with so much. That's not Jesus being insensitive. He's actually indicting a type of faith that is dangerous, that needs all the details before it moves, that wants ultimate control, which will replace God and man. But nevertheless, he says, go, your son will live. And now this man has to walk 16 miles in the other direction on a word because sometimes faith takes a leap. And you just go on a word. That's all I got. But I'm going to go. And sometimes faith takes a nap. It rests. So this is Matthew 8, where Jesus is in a boat, storm, destroying this ship. His disciples are going crazy. They're like, oh my, we are about to die. Jesus, come save us. So they go searching for Jesus, and Jesus is chilling, sleeping, taking a nap, resting. And they're like, what is wrong with this? Wake up, save us. But Jesus is resting because he has enough faith to know that God's not a liar, and now is not the hour. The hour that's coming for Jesus to die is a cross for the sins of the world. Not drowning in a storm. So he's resting because sometimes faith takes a nap and it rests. God got this. Here's a word for some of us. Some of us need a nap right now. That whole forcing the will of God in your life and the life of others. It's not faith. Faith may look like you right now in this moment taking a nap, just resting, saying this is no longer in my hands. What can I do? Leap, nap, all on the spectrum of faith. That is Christianity. And when God withholds and reminds us that he is categorically different and there is a will that is hidden, it allows us to move closer because we are living with faith. The will of God that's hidden. There's more. It's the will of God that's revealed. It's made plain, right? Let me give you a definition. The will of God that's revealed are things made known to us that we're responsible for. This is verse 29b. They've been made plain, naked, laid bare, revealed, revelation. Now, there's a few ways that the scriptures invite us to talk about revelation. By the way, this is a note-taking Sunday if you're curious, right? Now, one of those ways is general revelation, that God discloses information about all of life, about himself generally. So you just look at the canvas of the world, creation in general, and it tells a story of beauty and design. Walk outside, just look at yourself, look at your taste buds, and we are meant to understand there's a God of joy. General revelation, God writing who he is and what he's after on our very lives and the world around us. But now you have special revelation, which is God uniquely disclosing who he is and what he's after in powerful ways. Now, special revelation has always come through the Word of God. Always. God's voice to people. However, we need to be clear. God's voice to people is decisively contained in God's Word, the canon, Scriptures. And this matters. Example, I'm on a LaCroix kick right now. I don't know if it's a kick. I don't know if it's a kick. It may last for a long time because LaCroix be hitting, right? And so if I'm like, yo, Iman, because she keeps doing this, like, Iman, I need, this is what I need you to do. I can actually see now the lights. Iman, this is what I need you to do. I need, can, would you please, Iman, like, would you go uh, to Publix, the one on the 54th, because they have to go LaCroix, and would you grab me a box of LaCroix? This is me telling her, yes? Now imagine if I send her a text, right? Somebody like, oh, Moochie, you don't do that. You don't even text back. But I'll shoot her a text, and I'm like, um, 
right? <laughs> I shoot her a text, and I'm like, hey, Iman, just shooting you this text. Yo, can you go to the Publix on 54th, and can you grab me some LaCroix, please? Is there a difference in the source? No. The means may look different, but is the source the same? Yes. Is there a difference in it being true? No. Is there a different type of authority? Let's say I was like, yo, Iman, you know what I'm saying? I don't want to put a boss card, but let me put a boss. No. God's words to us are made plain through his word. And what is often the case, this goes back to the beginning of the sermon, we will use language that is very dangerous. And when we say, God told me to tell you, what we're doing unintentionally and intentionally for some people is we are putting what is coming out of our mouths on the same level as the word of God because the source hasn't changed. And that matters. That's why you search the scriptures and there's all of these caveats on what considers or what a prophet is considered. Now, I'm not going to say that there's no senses. I'm going to get there later, but I need to say it right now. That revelation is decisive. So why Jesus says about himself, you search the scriptures looking for life, but they point to me. There's this decisive declaration of who I am and what I'm after, and it's through the word of God. This is why Hebrews, the author of Hebrews say, in times of past, God spoke in a particular way. Through prophets, but in these last days, you want to know what's on the mind of God. You want to know who God is like. You want to know what he's after. You look to Jesus. And who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing is contained in the word of God. This is why at the end of the scripture, Revelations ends with, yo, there's so much that's happened. But these things were written so that we can have life. Please don't add to them or take away from them. And we all need to wrestle with, do we actually have confidence in the sufficiency of God's word? That God's words to us, revealed through his scriptures, are actually sufficient. But let me give us some, another category that's helpful. God's revelation isn't just general, it's not just special, it's not just decisive, it's actually progressive. That some things are made plainer, made clearer over time. We grow in our knowledge of it. We know that. What you knew now, some 20, 30 years from now, you're going to be like, man, I, knew more. I know it better. I know it more intimately. Which means that hindsight and humility are our friends. And story after story after story shows us how the will of God is often understood and seen clearest in hindsight. When we look back and we're like, oh, that makes sense. It didn't make sense at the moment, but now that I'm looking back, oh, it's progressively been revealed. That's why it was hidden in plain sight, but it was progressively revealed. That's why the writers of the New Testament say stuff like the mystery of the gospel, the salvific, salvific work of God is that it's not just for an ethnic community, it's from all people. And that what God is doing is he is creating a people from all people. And they look back, they're like, I see it now. I look at Abraham and you said, I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations. I see it now. I see Genesis 11 and how you scatter the nations, and now Acts 2 makes sense when you brought them back together. I see it now. It's progressive. Let me apply that in two ways and then move on to the rest. First, beware of blurry lines between what is hidden and what is revealed, especially when it's beneficial. Beware of blurring those lines. It's easy to do especially when it's beneficial. To put words in God's mouth is a tendency of every human. It is in the heart of us. It's residue from the garden. To make God say something that he hasn't actually said, to make God clearer that he's actually not being. God is mysterious in so many ways. And to try and bring clarity where God is determined for mystery is to make him a liar. So let's beware about blurring those lines. Second application of that hidden, revealed paradigm, those categories, is this. We would serve others and ourselves well if we shifted energy around and we shifted energy from what is hidden to what is revealed. 
My imagination is, I have new thoughts all the time. Curiosity and me, we have a great relationship. And so an idea sparked and then, and curiosity is beautiful. Curiosity is also a black hole. We know this. Man, we start on Twitter, then we ended up on Instagram, then we were on TikTok, and then it's bedtime, and we're like, where did my day go? Where did all of this productivity go? What happened? It was the cat, and I was like, oh. And did you all see that Bobcat video where that he was saving his leg? And so that took like four hours. I was like, what just happened to me? Gets us all. Is there anything that sparks more curiosity than trying to figure out what God is doing? and all of the infinite possibilities at play. And there's a time and a space for that, it's beautiful. But if we're talking about energy, it's to shift it from there to what's hidden and move it to what's revealed because it belongs to us and we're responsible for it, there's more. Back to Colossians chapter one, that's undergirding all of this. But there are two more categories that we see. We see the will of decree and the will of command. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, that's the will of decree. Let me give you a definition. It's a long definition. It's a mouthful, uh, just to be honest. But it says, this is the will of decree. The will of decree is God's sovereign rule over all things, whereby everything and everyone is ultimately and definitively moving in accordance with what God purposes to be. The will of decree is God's sovereign rule over all things, whereby everything and everyone is ultimately and definitively moving in accordance with what God purposes to be. The will of decree is God says it and it comes to pass. The will of decree is God purposes it and it's going to happen. The will of decree is God is unmatched in all of his power. The scriptures speak this way often, startling us, rubbing us in some profound ways, making us uncomfortable. Paul speaks in this way. So this is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. He says like this, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That God has this will, this counsel, these ideas, these desires and purposes, and he is going to enact them as he sees fit. Now, the rest of Ephesians 1 is going to say he's going to work all things out for the praise of his glory, that at the center of his will is God being known, God being seen as great and enjoyed forevermore. Nevertheless, that's how he's working all things, the will of decree. But what's fascinating is it's not just the writers of the scriptures who believe in God that speak this way. It's some of the participants in the story who don't believe in God who speak this way. This is Daniel chapter 4. So Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, Nebuchadnezzar, this ruler, this king, has this humbling moment in his life, and he gets an epiphany. In all of his arrogance, he gets brought low, and then he has this awakening of sorts. It's not to say that he now comes to faith. He just has this new understanding, and here's what he says about God. He says this, and he, he being God, does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now, let me pause here. Actually, to collect myself, because this is where I lost it. <laughs> this is where me and God go to war. You just need to. This is, this is the battleground for so many of us. Man, in my life and ministry, I have watched friends. I have watched members. I have watched Christians walk away because of this war. where it's like, I'm out. Because this truth is the thing that often threatens us the most and produces the most discomfort. And I think part of that is because we have these pictures of who God is that are informed by our own story. 
Lex Luthor in Batman versus Superman. Um, it was a great movie, the Snyder Cut, Justice League Snyder Cut in Jesus' name. Um, but in Batman versus Superman, Lex Luthor is confronting Clark, and, who is Superman, and he has this interesting diatribe. And he says, I learned early on because of my abusive father that there was no intervention from on high, nobody stopping the blows. I learned early on that God cannot be both all-powerful and all-good. And that if he's all-powerful, he is not all-good. And if he is all-good, he is not all-powerful. And that exists in all of us in some shape, form, or fashion. When we put the power of God and the goodness of God against each other. Because it's very hard to make sense of it. Because we operate based on our mind. If I am all-powerful, I move in a way for my comfort. But one of the most mysterious things in the entire scriptures is that God in mysterious wisdom allows things that break his heart. And the intersection of that mystery and that wisdom is the intersection of God's power and his goodness. That he moves in a way that produces ultimate good, ultimately. But we live in the reality of the here and now. And so there's a, there's a, there's a collision that every single one of us is on. I cannot stress this enough. And the collision is when God's plans are not in line with my plans, what comes next? What comes next? When it seems like the plans of God, that God has allowed to be, make you have to bury your brother earlier than you expected, what comes next? When some half a million people in our nation, because we rather debate the effectiveness of what comes next. When you're staring at the face of difficulty and frustration and anger, and you're wrestling with the Bible and this picture of a God who says he's good, but he allows this, what comes next? How we answer that, how we deal with that intersection changes everything. And that's why Luke 22 is so powerful for us. That Jesus, in the midst of this challenging moment, staring at the face of what he was born to do, which is die for us, he has this intimate conversation with God. And he says, God, listen, Father, if it is possible, you'll take this cup from me. However, not my will, but your will be done. In other words, what comes next? Oh, it's maybe what you want and it may not be what I want, but God, you're bigger, you're wiser, you're better, and I gotta trust. So what comes next is not me moving away from you, Listen to me, I do not know how the will of God is interacting with you right now. It may be something that you're cherishing deeply. You may be confused. You may be angry. You may be frustrated. But it is not to move you away from the heart of God. What comes next is the wrestle. It's that you need to make sense of this. What comes next is intimacy. God saying, I may not make sense of it, but I'm going to move closer to you. Let's go. What comes next is powerful if we understand the will of God well. He decrees it, and nobody tells him no. But it provides an opportunity to understand who he is more intimately, the will of the creed. There's more. Charles Spurgeon has this quote that I'm a, He said, I learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. Feed that to your soul. Um, the will of command, give you a definition, it's governing ideas and commands given for life. So here, 
in verse 9 through 10, he, it reads, And so from this day, the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. And then he goes on to just add all of these, like, caveats. How is it, how is it showing up? What is it producing? To walk in a way that is worthy. There's much fruit being bore. People are benefiting by it because fruit is not for fruit. It's... But here... At the beginning, it says that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will, his will, those things that he's revealing through his word, through senses in you, that what he is after, filled with it. And there's three ways that we understand filling, practically, but then scripturally as well. The first is when something's emptied, I'm adding more of it. So we understand filling. That's typically the way we use it, to get more of something, fill it up, right? The second is when something is being marked. So you're not just getting more of something, you're saying this marks something in a unique way. Example, this is a croissant filled with guava and cheese. Keep it going, right? And we love that. And so what you're identifying is that this is something unique. This is marked in a particular way. This ain't no ordinary croissant. It is filled with something. And then there's a third way that we use filling, which is really frequent, but I don't think we understand its implications. He was filled with fear, so he pulled the trigger too quickly. She was filled with frustration, so she signed the divorce papers prematurely. She or he was filled with grief, so they moved immediately to isolate themselves from other people. Are you tracking with me? And so it's filling that is motivation and movement. So you have the filling where you're getting more of something. You have the filling where you're marked by something. And you have the filling where it's moving you, it's motivating you, it's controlling you. This is Ephesians where he says, I'm going to get this juxtaposition. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled by the Spirit. Get more of it. Be marked by him. Be controlled by him. And in the same way, what he's saying is, I want you to have more knowledge, more understanding of what God is doing, what are his desires, and what are his purposes for your life and all the people. I want you to be marked by it, that it defines you, that your life moves in a way where God's desires and God's purposes are clearly at the center. His will, not yours. Your will be done. It should motivate you compel you, transform you, so much so it shows up in decision-making. But what's powerful about this is where Paul is placing his confidence. He's placing his confidence not in them having to figure things out. Listen to me. We do not discover what God is doing because we are smart. God reveals what he's doing because he is kind. And what he is doing is he is placing all of the heavy lifting on God's shoulders. This is a prayer. I'm praying that God would do this in you, considerations. The first, in light of everything that we said, is that we would be honest, humble, and thoughtful with our primary interpretive lens. Some of us, if we are honest, when we start to think about the desires and the purposes of God that he has and enacts over all creation as well, we start to think about that. We interpret the will of God primarily through the path of least resistance. This cannot be God's will because this is really hard. And we just need to be honest about that. We need to be honest about our interpretive lenses. Some of our emotional interpreters, like, I am an emotive person. I just emote. It just comes out of me. And so what I sense, if I'm not careful, can often be mistaken as the Holy Spirit. Going with my gut is not the same as being led by the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? And I'm an emotive person. I can confuse the two if I'm not careful. Some of us are hyper-intellectual. And so it is very hard for us to interact with God in ways that may shatter our boxes. But God is bigger than the boxes we can fit him in. He does it all the time. He's like, oh, this is a box for me? Watch me break that. Amen. So we just need to be honest, humble, 
and thoughtful regarding our interpretive lenses and what we're bringing to the table. We do not come to the scriptures empty. We come with presuppositions. We come with history that shape how we interpret the scriptures and how we will ultimately interpret the will of God. Second consideration. Be honest, humble, and thoughtful with the place of prayer. The place prayer is currently occupying in your life, in our lives. What is so fascinating is the perhaps language pervasive all throughout the scriptures. So even in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are being sent to go transform the world, and the sending of these missionaries happens in a prayer meeting. The Spirit speaks to them in a prayer meeting. It doesn't say how the Spirit spoke to them. It just says that they were praying, and the Spirit said, set aside Paul and Barnabas, and then they went on to transform the world. That consistently people are saying in the Scriptures, God, clarify what's going on. That happens in the context of prayer, which is just communication. So we just got to be honest, and humble, and thoughtful about the role prayer is occupying in our current life right now. It is incongruent, hear me, it is incongruent to say, I do not have a life of prayer, but I am following the will of God. That don't work that way. That is very incongruent because God makes his will known and stick. He confirms it. He settles it in our souls as we pray. There's more consideration. Be honest, humble, and thoughtful with the Holy Spirit's role in the life of God's people. That may freak some of us out, and some of us are like, yeah, been ready for that one. Cool. The Holy Spirit is not a power or a force that we can manipulate. He's the third person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and he moves and acts as he pleases. The Holy Spirit is the abiding presence of God, with his people, actively at work in, through, among, and around them for the glory of God and the good of all people. This is the pathway of the Spirit's work. When you search the scriptures, you search the book of John, you search the book of Acts, and what you consistently see is the Spirit moving in accordance with what is going to make God known and what is going to produce good for other people. This is the Spirit's work. And how that works, there's so much mystery there. What's certain is the primary work of the Spirit is through the Word of God. Making the Word of God known, applying the Word of God to people's hearts. That is the primary work of the Spirit. Now, there's senses we get. Get them all the time. And when we have these senses, we take them to God's Word. What are you doing here? This is what I'm sensing. This is what I'm seeing. And what we see is that the Spirit operates beautifully by saying, well, I'm going to start to make some of this plain. But not only does he work primarily through the Word of God, he works primarily through the people of God as well. So I cannot say I'm hearing from the Spirit of God when I'm actually divorced from community. If I don't have consistent people in my life who are walking well, it is incongruent to say that I'm actually hearing from God. No man is an island. No woman is an island. And so we just need to be honest and humble and thoughtful about the Spirit's role in the life of the people of God, how he's moving, how he's working, how he's operating to move us in accordance with the will of God, closing call to action. Let me read this passage. Acts 20. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. But I do not account my life for any value, nor as precious to me, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace." The interaction with the will of God can be summarized with this image, a blank page. God gives us this blank page that doesn't have a lot of details to it. Everything's not spelled out. 
It's just a page with some key ideas on it. I love you more than you could ever imagine. And I've proved it with a cross, and I'll prove it every single day. I love you deeply. I'm all powerful. Nobody's going to stop me. But I choose to deploy my power for ultimate good, even if it's only seen at the end of ages. There's a plan for your life that you would do great things and transform lives all around you with other people. Key details. And you know what God says? He says, sign it. And I'll fill out the rest. You sign the blank page and I'll fill out the details of your life. And you sign it not because you don't have fear in your heart. You sign it, not because that doesn't freak us all out. We sign it, not because we're not going to have to come back to it. We sign it because we have seen him. We've encountered him. He showed us who he is. He showed us those key ideas. And it's enough to say, I'm willing to go. I don't have it all figured out, but I'm going to go. No matter what comes next, you are with me. Let's go. I don't know what God is doing in your lives individually. But whatever he's doing, he's saying, yo, sign the blank page and we'll figure out the rest later. Be confident. Pray with me. God, dumping all of that out for us feels like it was more for me. Because this is where we're going to war. When I get off this stage and I sing and I sit, this is where we're going to war, God. But if I am just a reflection of the human experience that I know this is where all of us are going to war in some shape, form, or fashion. So God, win the fight. Win the fight in this moment right now. Where we are wrestling, where we are confused, where we are frustrated, where we are excited, would you win the fight right now? And would the product of your victory be us signing the blank page and saying, yeah, God, I'm with you. It's hard. It's confusing. But I'm with you. God, I'm with you. It's exciting, and there's more to experience. 